Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. I'm your host, John Powers, and we have a very special episode today. We usually don't jump on current event opportunities, but this we could not miss. Uh, Clearly, folks are following the disaster that's happened in Texas because of the polar vortex and the uh, power outage, as long as uh, loss of water and other major infrastructure. We wanted to bring in Jonathan Munkin, who is with Convert Strategies, but is really had previously been the Senior Director for Systems Resilience and Strategic Coordination at PJM. John is a West Point grad and energy security and national security expert. John really understands what's going on today uh, within the grid and some of the failures that happen around resilience. So we're going to really quickly jump on this topic and talk through some of the failures we saw in Texas and how to really plan to ensure this doesn't happen again. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. John, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely, John. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a, a special episode. We usually uh, don't dive into as much current events uh, as we are today, but you know, so much of the news recently about what's happening in, in Texas and the, uh, the polar vortex that has really just you know, shut the state down economically um, with power, with water. Uh, it's just an absolute mess. And you know, I really want to take this chance to talk to you as an expert in the space and help explain to people what is actually going on. And before we do that, I do want to step back and just set the table a little bit for folks who may not know you and I think your experience in this space. Um, you, first of all, came out of the military. You're a West Pointer, correct? That's right. Yep. All right. Uh, and then you, uh, you know, ended up going into a career in national security and then sort of in energy security. Right. Uh, and you, most recently, you were at PGM as a senior director for system resilience and strategic coordination before Converge. So talk a little bit, just for a second, about, you know, your sort of career path here and, and why you're sort of teed up to be able to talk about these issues. Yeah, it's interesting. I have uh, I have a very winding path in terms of how this really brings me to the energy sector in general. And so essentially, when I transitioned out of the military, my focus was in state government. So I was the head of the Illinois State Police for a couple right. of years. I was the head of the Illinois Department of Nuclear Safety, Emergency Management, and Homeland Security in Illinois for four years. And in that capacity, I started doing disaster responses. And so certainly Illinois has its fair share, right? There's plenty of everything from tornadoes to polar vortexes and floods. And so in that capacity, I started working a lot with the utilities in the state of trying to understand what I could do to support them and vice versa, recognizing the fact that if there's the the single most important question that people are asking immediately following a disaster is how many people don't have power? Because it's such an important indicator as to every other area of the response and how it's going. And so- I really just doubled down on that engagement with utilities and started working specifically in the energy sector because of this recognition that this is the linchpin that everything else just kind of hovers around. And so when I got to PJM, which is you know the largest wholesale energy market in the world, it's the largest grid operator in North America, they had a vested interest in saying that we need to have a formal resilience program because we can't just let this thing happen by accident. And it requires this cross-functional approach of saying, well, there's a market component to it. There's a transmission planning component to it, a real-time operations, physical and cybersecurity. All of these things are part of this resilience puzzle. And so that's really where I engaged and, and spent my time is coordinating with federal entities, 
from the Department of Defense to the Department of Energy and FEMA on how these things are done, how you develop power outage incident annexes or engage utilities in this way, how you develop and execute exercises in this space. So it's really become this, this whole thing of energy resilience that takes each piece of what I've done previously in my life, whether it's military, you know, law enforcement, homeland security, emergency management, and just kind of bundles it into one. And I think Texas is seeing impacts associated with literally every one of those areas. And so it's just yeah. unique. So I want to come back to Texas in one second, and I want to come back to this conversation later in another podcast, but I would love to hear about how your experience working across the bureaucracy has helped you work across the utility too yeah. uh, and bring those <laughs> together. But before diving into Texas, you know, um, just for folks that aren't familiar with Convert Strategies as well, um, and your just incredible team you guys have there, can you just talk for a second about what you guys do at Converge? Yeah, small but mighty. So essentially, yeah, all is, rock stars, really. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So really, our focus is on the intersection of advanced energy technology and national security. And the, the touch points there are practically infinite when you recognize right. the fact that it's so consequential to the execution of these national security functions and homeland security functions is the availability of electricity, of making sure these infrastructure systems are there to support it. Because otherwise, it it exponentially increases both the demand on finite resources during these events and, and how they're ultimately planned for to try and mitigate against these consequences. And so that's what we really do is perform this cross function in this cross-functional space of bringing together those huge bureaucracies, both within the industry and government, and saying, hey, there's there's some shaded area in the Venn diagram here that we need to work on if we both want to succeed in yeah. this type of adverse operating conditions. And speaking of adverse operating conditions, we're seeing just, <laughs> you know, to set the stage, I think everyone has seen the news, uh, you know, people with uh, water frozen in their bathtub in Texas right now and have been had been without electricity. Um, you know, this this will probably premiere a week after most of this has been, uh, at least on the power side, fixed. But Texas in its own right, I just want to set the stage of why Texas is unique as an energy beast, because uh, it has its own on grid. It's not interconnected between states. Can you talk a little bit about what that structure looks like for folks? Yeah, absolutely. So Texas essentially functions as an island. So across the United States, what you have is a network of independent system operators or regional transmission organizations and these balancing authorities that essentially do this real-time grid management across large swaths of the country. And so when you take the United States as a whole, there's three interconnections, Eastern interconnection, Western interconnection, and the Texas interconnection. So right. it's the only one that's not really regionally aligned in a multi-state environment. And there's a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is it basically allows them to be exempt from federal regulation on interstate transmission. So they've actively chosen to function as an island where anywhere else in the country, if you if you have a frequency deviation or a blip on the on the radar from the grid perspective in Florida, you're going to feel it in New York because they're part of the same interconnection. They're they're going to see the grid physics impacts across the entirety of the region, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. In the vast majority of instances, that's a great thing because you really know what's happening around with your neighbors, and you have a friend you can call on yeah. when you need to move that sofa up to the third floor walk up. You've got somebody that you can trust to help you. So just for the one-on-one -on -one basis of this for a second, so because Texas is islanded itself, meaning it literally can't pull power from Oklahoma and Louisiana or whoever's neighbors are. That's uh, exactly right. So when they were talking on Fox News about frozen wind turbines, which we'll come back to, or they're having issues with gas, there literally is nowhere else for them to pull power in because they're unplugged. That's right. right? And, and a fundamental truth of how grids are restored in general 
is you work from the outside in. So basically you go to areas that have stable power and you push the dominoes back up from the outside in. That's the fundamental blocking and tackling of grid restoration. And when you have a system that's isolated like that, if it hits the edges of your system, that's it. There's nowhere else to go. There is no one to call upon to have that stable grid and that stable flow of electricity that you can build your own system back off of. And that's what's so unique about this circumstance is that when you're on an island, there's nowhere else to go. So I'm going to come back to what caused this from a maybe regulatory perspective and policy perspective, but just paint a picture for the audience of, you know, I think the people have read the media reports or, or, you know, especially in the energy Twitterverse, Tucker Carlson's comments have gone all over the place, <laughs> but, you know, but, but really on the ground, like what, what happened over the last week in Texas uh, and has, it has caused, you know, people to go sometimes hours, sometimes days without power. Yeah, at its most fundamental level, what they experienced was a significant winter peak in demand for electricity. Uh, essentially, something that does not happen with regular regularity, something that they're going to see multiple times in an individual year. And the, the combined effect of having this significant increase in load, which was really a byproduct of the fact that 75% of the heating for customers in Texas uses electricity, not gas, which you would normally see in places like New England or your beloved Buffalo. Right. Where you're going to have a lot of gas there, right? Instead, what you've got is this huge demand on the grid. And what they had was a system that was not ready for it because they had so many generators, so much capacity on the system. They had to come offline because of the operating conditions they were experiencing. And essentially, you can just see there's no more juice to give. You've got all this demand on the system. There's nothing available to deliver to it. And they were really only able to get electricity to roughly half of all the customers in Texas, which is an unprecedented event. I mean, you, you, there is not a, an equivalent in U.S. history to, to reference. Yeah, I was, reading, I was reading recently about what's going on in, uh, in Austin and San Antonio. Is it CPS, right? Is that the... That's right. Yeah. Yep. And they, they had shut down, I think, three out of every five customers there. And the only reason the other two had didn't get shut down is because they happened to be living up, maybe next to a fire station, which is critical right. infrastructure, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in this instance, you know, Texas performed load shedding, which is basically taking customers off, the, off of the system. And every grid operator has a load shedding process, a, a list of procedures and things that they're going to do in order to reduce that pressure, that demand on the system. And typically what you have is a system that's prioritized and it's basically at the feeder level. So like you said, if you happen to live on a street with a police station or a fire station, odds are the utility has identified that distribution feeder as saying, this one's a priority that will be the last thing or one of the last things that we take off the system. But essentially it has to come from somewhere. And right. so one of the biggest challenges is usually the utility gets to be the chooser of how this is going to happen and where it's going to come off the system. But that's because the number is typically very finite. You're not talking about lots and lots and lots of customers. This is a very unique circumstance where you're saying you have to lose half of the system. You're well beyond the planning criteria that's established for utilities of saying, oh, these feeders are going to come off first. You're way past that. Now you're in uncharted territory of saying, we're just going to have to take as much off the system as fast as we can to get some level of balance back in the system. So, you know, a lot of people argue this is, or argue, I think appropriately, this, a lot of this is driven by climate change. We're going to see more of these situations driven by climate change. You know, this, how does this compare to, say, like a superstorm Sandy that happened, you know, a, a, almost a decade ago, I guess now? 
um, yeah. and you know had had similar complete shutout blackouts across places like New York and New Jersey and, and Connecticut. Well, I think the most fascinating difference between if we look at a hurricane-driven event is that there was no substantial infrastructure damage that was associated with this outage. Mm. When you talk about Puerto Rico, you talk about Sandy, you talk about Katrina, these are horrible events, right? Millions of people without power. But there was massive physical damage to infrastructure that really was the catalyst for the outage. Right. And then it takes time to stand those poles back up and rerun that wire and bring all these persons. This was a fascinating event because it was a it was a, it was an event without damage, right? There wasn't you weren't knocking down transmission lines, you weren't uh, you didn't have 120 mile an hour winds and massive storm surge and all these other things causing it. This was a misoperation of the system. This is fundamentally a byproduct of a poorly constructed energy market and the operational procedures that support it. So let's come back to that piece in one second. And last sort of question for you is: as you looked at the 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 baseload across the utility you know there's been a lot made in the uh conservative uh space around the fault of renewables here when the reality is gas uh had equal if not more more role to play can you just for a second talk about that baseload like what what is comprised of and then what were some of the root causes to you know you mentioned i live here in buffalo new york we have turbines literally sitting the edge of the great lakes which freeze every year but those things run fine Right. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The turbines themselves, they, they work. Um, yeah. You know, what what was the cause of that reduction in in uh, in production? So essentially what you have and, and baseload is the right term to use, because essentially that's the vernacular that has been brought forth in this discussion about legacy generation versus next generation. So when we're talking about advanced technologies, we're talking about renewables and those types of things that are coming onto the system. Those are considered this, you know, uh, intermittent load, this or intermittent capacity, these resources that are kind of on and off the system, depending on the conditions and what the circumstances are. Base load is a generic reference to say your fossil burning capabilities, right? Your coal, your natural gas. Uh, and then you get into things like nuclear. And so those are things that comprise this, these kind of the concept is this always on covering your bare minimum across the board for what you ultimately need to do. And that it's also touted as the resilient component of the grid itself of saying, well, it's more capable of being on whenever you call on it. And it's something that's you know dependable and is always going to be there. And I think the circumstance that you see here is, to your point earlier, this was not a, an issue of, well, the wind capacity dropped and that's what, what covered it. I mean, even if, let's say all the wind was completely on as a percentage of its total installed capacity, you're only talking about 10% and they lost right. 50%, right? They lost right. 50% of their ability to deliver. And so the number of baseload generators that were incapable of delivering as a percentage of their own installed base, as a percentage of what they contribute on a regular basis, their drop-off was substantially higher by orders of magnitude. So they failed at a much higher rate. In fact, wind in terms of its average was down in only in a single digit percentage of its regular output, expected output at that time of year. So not, not the cause of it, right? It's not going to be the thing that knocks, you know, four and a half million people off the system. Right. It's just one piece of the puzzle. So let's go to that that puzzle and putting that puzzle together. And you know, I think uh, you've you've mentioned this earlier, but really the sort of the failure here in both market design and um, sort of resource management. Talk a little bit about, you know, what uh, what, what are the failures you've seen there? And then, you know, how does Texas move forward? Like how, what lessons do we learn that can be shared in other, other markets here? 
Yeah. So essentially, I think what we've seen is that, you know, your point earlier about the uh, how much of an anomaly was this weather event? And, you know, certainly there are cl- ties to climate change here, right? Right. It's not as anomalous as you'd be led to believe, meaning that Texas has had multiple cold snaps in the recent past that have caused outages just on a different scale. And so the frustrating circumstance of it all is that there are steps that can be taken and have been taken in other areas of the United States to be able to account for those types of winter peaks and that type of operating condition. As, as you indicated, upstate New York has wind turbines and they, they make it through the winter. Okay. And so essentially what you have is this is a byproduct of a market that's built around least cost of delivery at the expense of essentially everything else. We're going to go for the cheapest megawatt hour we can possibly find under any conditions and that's what's going to build up the base of our grid. And so the byproduct of that is for people who are building these generation assets, when you're when you're saying least cost of delivery is what allows me to get into the market and make money here and, and get customers, you are going to forego anything that's an additional expense that you deem to be non-essential. And one of those examples is winterizing your assets in Texas, because you look at it and say, statistically speaking, I don't think it's going to happen. So I'm not going to pony up the extra money and winterize these resources because that's going to that's going to cost money. If you're a natural gas generating facility in northern states, a lot of natural gas plants purchase firm service for natural gas delivery, making them a priority instead of the last person to get natural gas. Right. Conditions are tight. You're going to pay for it, right? You're going to winterize your low voltage electronics and the control systems in the generating facilities themselves so that they don't freeze up in this circumstance. You're gonna potentially procure a dual fuel contract of saying like, I actually can run on gas or I can run on oil or I can run on diesel or I, can, or I have a battery backup on site. I have another resource that I can leverage. Those are all expenses that are not incentivized in the Texas market right now. And so they just don't build them because they think the probability is low enough that it's it's not going to be an issue. What type of, you know, the economic hit I think is still very much to be to be discovered here. Um, you know, I think the economic hit obviously of Sandy was hundreds of, of billions of dollars. And the thing about Texas and Houston and Austin and some of these hubs shutting down for days will be equivalent in terms of dollars. How much is it going to cost to now retrofit oh. that winterization, <laughs> right? And, and, and how, yeah. does, how does Texas get its head around, you know, third party owners of, of, I use the wind turbines as an example, but maybe use a natural gas plant as well. You know, are they going to, you know, put out grants to do this? Like, how do they start to to wrestle with this going forward? Yeah, it's a great question because essentially, I, the last statistic that I saw is that ERCOT had actually done an analysis of what the economic impact of the loss per megawatt hour would be for whenever they had failures. And this was following the 2011 cold weather event where they had to shed about 4,000 megawatts of load. And so essentially, based what was on the, the total count- megawatt shed this time, yeah. uh, this time we're talking about essentially we're looking at more than 15,000 megawatts, more than 20,000 megawatts. We're talking four to five times bigger than what we had before. Yep. And so using their own math, essentially what they've determined is that every 24 hour period for the size of load loss in this particular event, it's two and a half billion dollars in economic impact, economic opportunity that was lost as a result of the outage. And we're already four days past, right? And so you're talking about $10 billion of lost economic opportunity. So when you're talking about the price tag, what an interesting question, because at this point, it's worth $10 billion or more to make this investment. And essentially, the, the 
it does not turn on a dime. All, all of these strategies that were developed in northern states to build out things like capacity performance markets and these winterization techniques and the things that you can do, it's a, it's a years-long process of implementing. But essentially, what normally would cost 5% over the, the construction cost of these resources, now you're talking 10 to 15% to go back and retrofit all of these systems to be able to withstand these types of events. And so you can socialize that cost. You can spread it out amongst ratepayers and say, okay, well, these things are eligible for rate-based recovery. So it's either going to be taxpayer dollars or ratepayer dollars right, for right. the state of Texas. But one way or another, they're going to have to, to spend some money. Is there any chance this shakes up the whole ERCOT stru- structure in, the, in Texas and there's no longer an island? Or well, maybe. I mean, yeah. there was a, a NERC, a North American Electricity Reliability Corporation, and FERC, Federal Ener- Energy Regulatory Commission. Both of them published reports following each of the last two cold weather events that forced customers off the system in Texas, neither of which were heated. So at this point, in the absence of enforcing federal regulation on them, there's, there's really, it's up to Texas to try and figure out what they're going to do. And I think you raise a really interesting question, which is if they can't implement on their own and they've had multiple opportunities to do it and have passed previous legis- legislation within the state of Texas to try and force this winterization that just wasn't heated, but was never and never enforced, at some point, it's going to have to come home and roost because you, they can't continue in this way assuming that it's just never going to happen again because twice in a decade is not an irregular event. It is now well inside of the planning cycle of a grid operator. Interesting. And then finally, you know, I think obviously all of these outages, you know, it'll take months to sort of wrap our head around all the lessons that are going to be applied here. But in the, the utility verse of folks that are, that you engage with, you know, what are you sort of just forecasting? What are the, some of the major lessons that you think others will will pick up on here and, and try to implement in their own. I mean, there's so much happening, first of all, just in the utility space in general. The, the markets are getting shifted and many places are just completely flipping over because of the the insurgence of uh, renewables and storage. And, and, you know, you have a new administration that's going to push new policies. But this is, you know, uh, equivalent to a Superstorm Sandy level event where it, it can be game-changing, not just for utilities but for the customers the the uh you know the, the walmarts the the ebays the apples others others who have operations in dallas uh in, in texas you know how how do you what kind of lessons do you see coming out of this that can help uh ensure that uh we don't have a situation like this again well i mean i think a big part of it is that there has long been the drumbeat of the least cost delivery of service and i think there are other areas of the country that have been able to identify value streams that resonate with customers. And so one example is people are willing to pay more on average to have uh, carbon reduced or clean energy, right? People yeah. people say, will willingly say, yes, I will pay a little bit extra to make sure that I'm getting renewable. At this stage, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone in Texas who wouldn't pay extra money to have a more resilient grid that, that says, you know what, the least cost thing had its benefits, but I'm willing to pay 15 cents a month more for my electricity or you know, $5 a month more for my electricity to make sure that this doesn't happen again, to make sure that the adequate steps are taken in order to harden the system or, or harden generation to do it. Let me ask you just a follow-up on that. So I think about Fort Hood, right? Fort Hood had a major sort of microgrid pro- 
uh, program being put in place the last couple of years mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with Apex Energy and others. Any idea how that how that operated in this situation? So we're actually trying to unpack exactly what the extent of of impacts to DoD facilities were because Texas is it's a military state, right? I mean, some of the biggest military installations on the planet are located in Texas. And so essentially, I mean, I think at, at first blush, they, they were not immune to these types of impacts. There was the opportunity to still for the operator to make some choices as to where they were going to take people off of the system based on that prioritization. And so it certainly insulated installations to a degree, but I think it's also a reminder of why they were pursuing a microgrid program to begin with. Which is right, mission assurance, the ability to execute national defense missions is completely dependent on the availability of private infrastructure to execute. And this is a very harsh reminder of exactly why that's important. And the amazing thing is, you just can't point to something that says, well, we saw this, you know, it, it was not a 2017 hurricane season and says, well, it was a Cat 5 hurricane that annihilated the transmission and distribution system. This is something that was jet, largely an unforced error, right? right? Yes, it was extremely cold. Yes, that cold weather was rare. However, you know, you, you can't point to physical carnage as, as what got us here. And I think that's a wake-up call for DOD as well, of just understanding. Wasn't that cold? It's like August in Buffalo. Or is it there? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would have been out there in your shorts for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, John, well, first of all, Part two of this, and you just talked about it, part two of this podcast is going to be with John's partner, Michael Wu, exploring DOD and energy security. Uh, we have talked to doing it for a while, and you're going to hear that soon. But I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us on short notice to talk about this. You know, it's such an important issue, and folks just don't, you know, really are trying to wrap their heads around, you know, what's going on down there. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure to do it. And I think you're asking the right questions here that that need to be pursued because it's going to be the difference between our system doing what we really need it to do societally and just failing us at the time we need it the most. And thank you so much to Converge Strategies and to Adair and the team there helping put this together and, and to our producers, uh, Colin Young and Carly Batten. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.